welcome, welcome, welcome to the Mike the Gardener podcast, sponsored by Natural Grower, the supplier of plant-based products for organic and chemical-free gardening and houseplants. Coming up in today's episode, I chat with Otis about his brand new garden and what he's planning to do with it. But first, I chat with garden writer Sally Nex about her brilliant new book, How to Garden the Low Carbon Way. Sally, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, garden writer, author and gardener, what do you actually see yourself as when you explain to people what you do for a living? Oh, gardener, I'm afraid. I kind of, you know, the, the, it, the one grows from the other, I find. You know, my gardening feeds my writing. I couldn't possibly be a garden writer without actually getting my hands dirty, I think. Mm. Um, so it's always been really important to me to keep up the professional gardening side of things. Um, doesn't pay brilliantly, I'll be honest, but the fact <laughs> is that I don't really care because it, it gets me out there, gets me growing all sorts of things that I wouldn't normally have grown because, you know, you, you have your own things, don't you, in your own garden that you grow for yourself. Yeah. But being a professional gardener as well takes me out of that comfort zone and means that I have to grow for other people and grow the things that they want. And that means that, you know, I, I try out all sorts of stuff. I mean, there's, it's very rarely that a year goes by when I don't have some plant or other that I haven't grown before that I'm kind of trying out. So it, it really does feed into the writing. And then the writing also makes me think completely differently about my gardening as well. And particularly lately with all the sustainable gardening stuff, I have ch- completely changed the way that I garden. So, you know, I find that it's just a continual learning process to both feed the other. So in 2013, you started developing sustainable, low-carbon, eco-friendly gardening methods. What happened in 2013 for you to start on this really important crusade? Oh, well, it was the strangest thing because it was completely out of the blue. Um, I wasn't even really thinking. I mean, I've always been vaguely kind of greenish, you know, been making a little bit of an effort to look after the environment and things and cared a lot about the state of the environment. But um, in 2013, it was actually... Actually, uh, my daughter was getting her Bronze Duke of Edinburgh Award, would you believe? <laughs> and I was, uh, it's kind of a rainy autumn afternoon, nothing very special. And I was on my way to um, a theatre in Yeovil, which is not very far away from here. And uh, I was just going to watch her get her award. And it's one of those events where you get like hundreds of children come up on stage, one after the other, after the other, and none of them is yours. And you sit there for hours and hours and hours watching other people's kids get their awards. And suddenly your kid comes up, 10 seconds, you clap like mad, and then that's it. (laughs) So I wasn't really expecting very much from the evening. And the only thing was that the keynote speaker was a lady called Emily Penn. And um, I had never heard of her, um, but she, uh, she spent her life sailing around the Pacific, monitoring the Pacific gyres. Now, I, at that point, hadn't even heard, I didn't even know what a gyre was and hadn't heard anything about plastic pollution or anything like that. And she stood there for about an hour or two and um, she just told us about this raft of plastic rubbish that was floating about on the, on the Pacific Ocean. She, taught, she, she went to Midway Island, which is this island in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Mm. Um, nobody lives there, but it's like a little kind of nature reserve. And uh, all the albatrosses nest there. And she was saying, and they were getting reports of chicks dying for no obvious reason. So they did post-mortems on these chicks and found them absolutely full of things like toothbrushes, you know, stuff that you and I use. Yeah. And these poor things were being fed plastic bags by their parents who didn't know the difference between plastic bags and jellyfish. And um, it was just heartbreaking, the whole thing. I, I mean, I just, my jaw dropped and I listened with absolute horror as she described all this stuff and 
all of the objects that she was showing on the, showing on the screens were things that I use day, day to day, you know, toothbrushes, plastic bags, all of those kinds of things. Anyway, so I came home with my eyes newly opened. It was like I saw the world completely differently. I got into my car and realized the whole car was made of plastic. Got into mm. my kitchen, realized that I had a plastic dishwasher and a plastic washing machine and the brush that I used to wash the dishes was plastic. Everything was plastic. So anyway, I started to sort of try and reduce the plastic in my home that's still a kind of work in progress. I'm, I'm getting there, but you know, yeah. it's, a, it's difficult. But the place I could really make a difference was in my garden. And with my newly opened eyes, I walked into my garden the following day and realized that I had this sea of plastic absolutely everywhere. Well, I had and, to look um, around my garden it, the other day. It's so it, you, ugly, you know, isn't it? Pots, watering cans, wheelbarrows, polytunnels if you have them, garden yep. tools. You are, as you say, everything you pick up or a lot of things you can pick up are made of plastic absolutely it amazed me that i hadn't seen it before you know so i started to try and get rid of it uh, or not really get rid of it um i started to just not buy any more actually was the first thing i said to myself um so anyway this cut a long story short this turned into a really um a real sort of campaign uh my private campaign to begin with um just to reduce the amount of plastic that i used in my gardening and uh, eventually I did a little column about it for the Garden magazine. And that led into a whole series of columns, in fact. Um, this was a, a few years later by this stage. Uh, and I did a whole year's worth of columns every month, mm. just charting all of the different ways in which I was reducing plastic. That won me an award, which was wonderful. And uh, basically, it's, it, it also changed my the, the direction, I suppose, of my writing career, because these days I'm most I'm, I'm still writing about fruit and veg as I did, as I have always done. But uh, it's very much with a sustainable uh, slant now. And people care more now as well. There's a lot more awareness of the environmental damage that it does. I think there certainly is. I know. Sort of, uh, is it 400 years for a single plastic bag to actually biodegrade, mm -hmm. which is. Yeah, just to put that into context, the plastic had existed at the time of Shakespeare and when, uh, you know, Elizabeth I was on the throne. If plastic had existed then, it would only just have broken down now, would yeah. you believe? That, it, which is crazy. incredible, isn't it? Yeah. And it is getting more and more exposure now. The media is full of, we need mm. to be aware of the plastics that we're using. Yes, most so, definitely. And I think, you know, because it's, it's actually, of course, good old David Attenborough, what would we do without him? He was the one who really raised the awareness to the point where it really tipped the balance and started people behaving differently. And he's, he's just been amazing, actually. It's been really, really good. Uh, ever since he did that, people have been taking it seriously and they've mm. really been trying to change what they do. Um, and that extends right up into the horticultural industry and everywhere is trying, not always successfully, but trying at least to do the right thing and reduce the amount of plastic we use. So what can we do as gardeners to drive down our plastic usage in the garden? Well, I mean, there's all sorts. I mean, the most obvious ones are things like plant pots, which, of course, we all have tons of in our blooming sheds. I've got, mm. I've got hundreds and hundreds of them myself. Um, but the, uh, the thing is, you can, first of all, it's a good idea. You, you notice I say don't buy any more new plastic rather than don't use plastic at all. Yeah. The thing about uh, your pots that you've got at the moment is that they have many more years of life left in them. So you can reuse the pots you already have, but there is a limit to that. You don't want to reuse them to the point where they're falling apart, because if you do that, then as soon as they start cracking, they are shedding little bits of plastic into the wider environment, straight into your soil, in fact. Yes. Um, so it's best to you know stop before they become 
before before they reach the end of their useful life actually and when you replace plastic items in your garden just replace them with something that's biodegradable i mean to be quite honest with you i don't really use my plastic pots are stacked up in my shed and i don't really use them anymore because i have found that things do better in biodegradable anyway I'm completely biodegradable all the way through from seed sowing all the way through to planting out in the garden now. And uh, so I use um, oh, wooden seed trays, uh, newspaper pots, a cardboard, larger plant pots. Sometimes I go splash out and buy in, you know, fiber pots, that kind of thing. But there's no need to use plastic all the way through that process. You just don't need it. Is this something that the horticultural industry will begin to buy into? Because clearly we go to our garden centres and we still have the plastic plant pots, the plastic seed trays. When will the garden centres actually start to buy into the fact that they need to change as an industry? Well, this is uh, it's a very, very difficult problem for the industry. And actually, to be quite honest, even though I'm very frustrated about the slow progress, I do have a fair bit of sympathy because the entire industry is built on plastic. The whole kind of system of mass producing plants cheaply uh, so that you can just wander into your garden centre and pick up a plant any time of the year and bring it home and plant it. That kind of uh, mass produced ethic is uh, something which is basically only possible if you can grow in plastic because if you can grow in plastic you can automate your potting systems you can produce thousands millions probably of plants Mm. um, at a very cheap cost now you can't do that with biodegradable because biodegradable by definition is a sort of fairly changeable organic material Um, pots don't always come out the same size you can't put them into machines Mm. Um, so it means that you know they, they have to change so much about the way that they do things in order to switch to biodegradable that I'm not sure they're ever going to be able to do it under the current system. I mean, I would say that there's a very big argument for um, switching much more towards uh, buying bare root in the autumn. Uh, Many, many perennials and uh, as well as the usual stuff like, you know, roses and and, uh, strawberries and things like that that we're used to buying bare Bare root. root. These days, you can also grow a huge number of different kinds of perennial bare root. Um, It's a much better time to plant them as well, because you can put them into the ground when they're nearly dormant anyway, so that Mm -hmm. they spend the winter getting their roots down. And then they've got a really good root system before they have to support any leaves in the spring. So it means that they get away in record time in the spring. And it's all actually much more geared towards their natural cycle. If you buy a plant in a plastic pot in the middle of summer, and you put it in your garden, you're going to spend most of your time keeping that plant alive against all the odds because it's been put in the ground with a small root system when it's dry and it's hot and it's desperately needing to transpire, but without the roots to support it. It's a crazy way to do things, to be quite honest. And it is, and I guess sort of as gardeners, I I was actually taught you can plant throughout the year so long as the ground isn't frozen or waterlogged so we go out we go to our garden centers we see these beautiful blooms in their plastic pots we pick them up because they look so nice yep. so we almost need to step back now and maybe rethink the way that we plant our gardens absolutely if you plant during the autumn particularly and also i mean the winter if it's not too frozen or waterlogged yeah. um, if you plant while your plants are dormant then you don't need to water because the winter is here, you know, nobody waters in the winter. So you don't need to water, you water it in to begin with, but other than that, don't touch it. By spring, it's got its roots right the way down into the water table where they need to be. All you need to do after that is mulch it, keep the 
keep the ground sort of covered in a mulch just so that the water doesn't evaporate out. Mm. And then mm. to be quite frank, you probably don't have to water that much apart from in real drought spells after that. And you'd water everything in those sorts of uh, conditions. So basically you've got an established plant there. There's no need to put all the resources that you have in the way of, you know, treated tap water and, and, and high carbon artificial feeds and things like that. There's no need for any of that if you've established your plant well from the start. And of course, I guess on top of that, Sally, we also have the ethos of right plant, right place. If we're putting the right plants in the right conditions, we shouldn't need to be on top of them all the time to keep watering a plant that requires a damp soil. And we've put it in a free draining sandy soil. Absolutely. I mean, so important, this principle. Apart from anything else, it saves you such a lot of work. I am a really lazy gardener. <laughs> I do not like having to do stuff when I really don't need to, you know? I like to, I, I have limited amounts of time in the garden too. And what I have out there, I want to be doing stuff that's really needed, not trying to keep some poor plant going when it really doesn't like it where it is. If I've got a plant that I've planted in the wrong place, and these days that's quite rare, but just occasionally it happens. Yeah. I'll try it in a different place. It's much better to move a plant into a position that it's more likely to enjoy than to keep trying to keep it alive somewhere it doesn't like. And I think that's a lesson for, for all of us. Likewise, I've, I've often gone to garden centres, seen a plant and thought, I know it needs this type of free draining soil, but I'm going to give it a go. And yeah. you are on top of it. You're chasing it to keep it going. So it is better to do a bit of homework before you go out. Think about your garden soil. Think about its location and what conditions it actually needs and provide those naturally rather than trying to engineer something that is, doesn't work quite so well. Yes, absolutely. And um, having said that, I mean, I am up for taking the occasional risk. Yeah. So, for example, a few years ago, I planted mâchoire, which is um, a tuberous uh, nasturtium. Um, mm -hmm. It's Tropiolum tuberosum, I think is the Latin. Yes, I know and that one. It's basically an edible root um, and it, it tastes very peppery. To be quite honest, I'm not too keen on eating it. But fortunately, it's a very, very pretty plant. I've, I've been growing it up a trellis. Now, it's it's not reliably hardy. And um, so if you live in more northern bits of the UK, you probably won't be able to get it through the winter. But I thought, you know, I'm going to give it a go down here in Somerset where, you know, the, the frosts can be hard, but they're, they're, they aren't usually. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I thought I'll give it a try, stuffed it in there. And I thought, well, you know, I'm not going to bother protecting it. I don't want to put in the extra resources to try and protect it. Again, that's hard work. It's trying to keep a plant going when really it shouldn't be growing in your climate. And you're using resources. I'm always conscious of the fact that if you're trying to wrap something, if you're trying to insulate it, you're using resources which really, you know, it would yeah. be much, uh, much more environmentally friendly, to be quite frank, if you didn't have to use those resources if the plant was actually growing where it wanted to grow. So, um, so I put it in, it grew beautifully the first year and it died back down and I thought, oh, well, you know, I might not see that again, but blow me, it came up the next year and the, year, and, and the next year and the next. And the lovely thing is, if you can get it through the first few years, um, as soon as it becomes more mature, it actually becomes hardier. So um, it's basically, it's to all intents and purposes, hardy in my garden. Now that was a risk. Mm. And I would quite happily have given up if it hadn't worked. That's fine. But uh, so I'm not saying don't take risks, really, but, but just it's being aware of what you're doing, I think, and, and, and working within your parameters. Definitely. Now, you've just written a new book which encapsulates what we've talked about so far, Sally, how to garden the low carbon way. How did the book come about? Is this something that you pitched or someone come to you to say, let's pull all these ideas together? Well, a bit of both, really, actually. And um, I was originally sort of talking around the possibility of putting all everything that I'd learned about gardening without plastic into a book. And uh, 
So I was talking about that with Chris Young, who's the editor of The Garden, and um, he was, uh, it was actually a chance meeting. We, we were at the Garden Media Guild Awards, would you believe? And mm. uh, I happened to be sitting next to um, uh, Ray, who is the uh, one of the editors at Dorling Kindersley, and she, basically, I was rattling on, poor lady. I was banging <laughs> on about this to her as well. Um, and Chris was, was on the table too. Anyway, we ended up having a long conversation about it, and out of that came this book because Ray had the um, very good idea of, uh, she basically said that she didn't think that just plastic would make a book, but if we had it in amongst something that was much wider about sustainable gardening more generally, then she could run with that. And that's basically what we did. And so how long has it taken to pull all the information together and to actually write the book? And I've I've had a read and it is packed with information. I was completely overwhelmed by how much we can do as gardeners. So where did you start? Oh, my goodness. Well, to be quite honest with you, it's the distillation, really, of the last five, six, seven years of, my, of what I've learned in with my gardening, mm. um, plus a bit of a sort of extra research to try and, well, not to try and, to, it's pulling together the research that I've come across as well in all of that time. And uh, so it's, it's really, I mean, it's just kind of grown, I suppose, fairly organically out of what I've been doing anyway. Once you start to garden sustainably, it tends to sort of reach its tendrils into all sorts of other bits of your gardening life. So for example, you know, I started with plastic and then of course from that comes, for example, you know, peat-free compost, uh, which I have always used, I have to say, but then I started to look into, um, I was still at that time using seed compost, uh, the John Innes seed compost, which does contain peat. um, And uh, so I started thinking, I can't use peat-free multipurpose without, and, and then carry on using it for seeds. That's silly. So I started to look into different ways that you could, you know, avoid that. And also I was looking into avoiding um, plastic bags for compost as well. So that led me into making my own compost. And uh, so it went on. So I started making my own compost and then I started making leaf mould. And then I thought, well, how else can you get rid of garden waste in your garden? Because it's got to be better than taking it to the tip because you save your car journey. This has been happening for years. It's just all these little kind of chains of thought that happened and um so that was it basically i just pulled it all together into one book and distilled it down backed it up with some research uh, in terms of the sort of carbon impact of some of the things that you do in the garden that are perhaps not so advisable uh, environmentally that is and uh, and there we go that was my book <laughs> how do you actually sort of proportion your time for writing and gardening yeah well um Anybody who knows me will tell you that I am quite a chaotic person. I tend to lurch from one thing to the other and and I'm forever chasing deadlines and, and, you know, writing into the evening and things like that. And, oh, my goodness, basically, I'm slightly overcommitted. I think it's probably true to say. Well, that's Um, a nice problem to have. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I, I keep telling myself this. (laughs) <laughs> but sometimes I think to myself, why do I do this to myself? Basically, I look after um, sort of two and a half gardens a week. Uh, there's one garden that I do that's every other week. And then I uh, I have a couple of days of writing. And um, my own garden, I tend to do an hour or two at the end of the day, usually, thereabouts. Um, but then that depends on weather and all sorts of things. So I also catch up a bit at the weekend. And then I go away for a weekend. and Well, I used to anyway, of course, I haven't been in lockdown. But uh, after yeah. lockdown, I hope to start that again. But then that will completely upend everything. Because, because, of course, when I do that, I have to catch up on the stuff that I didn't do at the weekend during the week somehow. I wouldn't have it any other way. It's, no. it's great fun. It really is. And I'm doing what I love. I'm so lucky to be doing something that, to be honest, and don't tell my editors this, but I do without being paid, to be quite honest, because I love it so much. It's just, it's just wonderful. 
So the going away at the weekend, Sally, is that for your garden talks? Uh, some no, the garden talks tend to be in the evening. That's the other thing that I do quite a lot of uh, in non-lockdown times. Is you'll find me beetling around through the countryside in my car, <laughs> peering through the window windscreen, trying to listen to the sat nav at the same time, finding my way into obscure bits of Devon and 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 Somerset because um, <laughs> I do lots of talks in the in the area um, to gardening clubs and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but no, if I go away, it's usually to lead um, garden tours for HF holidays, which is the other string to my bow which is a lovely thing to do basically you spend a whole week looking at gardens it's just marvelous really oh that's really that's yeah that's just bliss isn't it? i can understand mm. that you would do that without being paid wouldn't you uh, yes <laughs> don't tell them <laughs> yeah we won't we won't say that too loudly <laughs> and of course you haven't always been a writer you started your career at working for the bbc am i right in saying i did yes that was in my previous life when i was a, <laughs> a, a, it, it seems such a long time ago well it is a long time ago now actually but um no I started out I did about uh, let me think it was probably about 15 to 20 years I think it was my mm. fir the first 15 or so years of my career were in London as a broadcast journalist for the BBC and um I worked uh, right across actually I worked started in world service radio uh did a little bit of time in radio 4 um and uh, most of the time I did some world service television and then a long stint at uh, in the nine o'clock news as it was then um, and then went over to uh, BBC Online as well, News Online. Um, so I had a, a quite a wide-ranging career across BBC News and uh, did a bit of broadcasting, mostly for um, World Service, and uh, travelled a bit, you know, had a lovely, lovely time. What broadcasting were you doing for World News then? Well, um, I made documentaries. Uh, they, they have a programme on World Service Radio called Assignment, and uh, you basically get to make a half-hour documentary, and every, they do it in rotation through all the journalists, or they did in my day anyway, I don't know what mm -hmm. they do these days. So you get a turn, as it were, at uh, doing an assignment, um, uh, you know, once a year or so. And right. I, um, with mine, I went across to Chechnya, actually, in the south of Russia, because uh, Russia used to be my specialism a bit. And uh, so I went to Chechnya when the war was going on. At the time, I kind of wanted to be a war correspondent, but uh, I went to a war <laughs> and it wasn't even a very big war. And uh, oh, my goodness, I thought to myself, I can't. It was traumatic. I, I could not, couldn't do that every day of my life. I'm very glad there are people who do so that they can tell us what does happen in these places. But having seen the awful, awful stuff that happens, I, I'll never forget it, to be quite honest. And I came away from that thinking I never go, want to have to see that. Uh, I don't have a thick enough skin. I think it upset me too much. God, so Assignment is one of the most listened to news feature programmes, isn't it? Is that right? Oh, yes, okay. it I didn't know that. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's, it's brilliant. It is really good because people go into all sorts of strange places because you're basically, they say to you, all right, you're on assignment this, this month or whatever. Um, where do you want to go? And you literally have, you can choose anywhere in the world. Goodness me. Well, that... Mm. That's a world away from what you're doing at the moment. So, isn't it just? What What prompted you to move from what you were doing for the BBC to going into journalism and gardening? Was there something that happened, or? Well, I had children, <laughs> 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 and and the thing about being a news journalist is it's one of those jobs that kind of takes over your life, and you live for the job really. Um, and also, they I was doing shifts at the time, and they have. Um, all sorts of like night shifts and late shifts and early shifts and you just can't uh, manage that as well as looking after babies 
So, uh, so when I had children, the BBC, to, to their credit, um, tried to do right by me and in fact were very supportive and they, the problem was that they, I couldn't do shifts anymore so I had to move away from news a little bit so I went yeah. into a kind of a background job as it were in, in news online as I was then and uh, they, it was a nine to five job which was fine. Uh, as far as the children were concerned. But the problem was that it was also quite boring compared to what I had been doing. And so I quite quickly kind of lost interest, really. And I thought, well, why am I spending all this time away from my children, who's, which is where I really wanted to be, um, to do a job that I'm not really, it's not really ticking all my boxes. So it was, and at the time, they were also asking for, for voluntary redundancies. Um, so I just thought, you know, it's time to go. Um, try and, try and go do something different, you know. Were you writing as part of your job for the BBC? Yes, very much so. Actually, you write much less than you think you would as a broadcast mm. journalist, because as a print journalist, obviously, you're writing lots and lots and lots. Yeah. Um, and to be quite honest, uh, I always felt mildly diddled because uh, <laughs> I went into being jur- a journalist because I loved writing and I've always loved writing. Um, and, uh, and of course, when you're writing for broadcast, um, I used to write on the nine o'clock news, I used to write the bits that the, con- that the announcer reads so yeah. you know um uh, who is it these days hugh uh hugh edwards um that, it wasn't in those days but you know somebody like that yeah um but it's 20 seconds of script and you say um three words a second so you're talking about 60 words Goodness. <laughs> and that's basically the sum total of the writing that i got to do <laughs> and the rest of the time it was all fixing and going and sorting out interviews and um editing in the edit suites and going out with camera crews and all that kind of stuff and yeah. so you know, so I didn't really get to do anything like as much writing as I wanted to. It was better in news online because then you're talking about writing for web. So that goes up to about five or six hundred words. So that was better. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be honest, since I write, since I started writing for magazines, I am at last being the writer that I always wanted to be because I can be creative now with my writing. I've got space to, uh, you know, I can talk about my own thoughts and feelings and take things where I want them to go and all of that it's it's such freedom compared to how I used to have to write in my news days so it it is wonderful it's very liberating so how did you actually start writing for gardening magazines gardening publications well I'd always been a very keen gardener ever since I was the student with the ha- with the room full of houseplants you know what I mean so, <laughs> yes <laughs> so, I mean I didn't really kind of think of myself as a gardener in those days but of course when when I look back I really really was so I'd never really not gardened I, I mean even when I got my first flat when I was about 25 those were the days eh? um, <laughs> but anyway and uh, uh, that had a little garden with it and that's when the genie came out of the bottle I was I, I okay little confession here I was sitting in front of Gardener's World in the great days of Jeff Hamilton with a notebook on my knee and I would actually take notes and (laughs) I was learning so fast um, because this was the first time I'd had my own outdoor space and uh, and it just went from naught to 60 and it sort of you know that was what I did when I wasn't at work and so I'd always gardened a lot and when I was thinking about changing career that was the first thing I thought that I want to do is horticulture Mm. but um, it was fairly fairly clear and I was qualified by that time because I'd taken my RHS level two a few years previously mm-hmm. um, and it became quite clear that uh, I was going to take a heck of a pay cut if I uh, just did gardening yeah. and um, and also you know it wasn't I didn't want to give up the writing either and so it became just it was a sort of natural progression really I thought well I want to garden and I also want to write so why don't I write about gardening 
No, and but, so do you remember your first published article and how easy was it for you to get an article published? It was really difficult. It took <laughs> ages and ages and ages. I had I had one article published about um, stocks, Mathiola, um, in uh, I think it might have been the English Garden. Actually, this was this was okay. 15, 15 years ago. Um, but it was one of those things where I wrote in, you know, just sort of pitching an idea, thinking I would never hear back again. And mm. they came straight back to me and said, oh, yes, that's a good idea. And I was like, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do now? <laughs> I've, never wrote it. I've never written an article for a gardening magazine. Oh my and I've never written an article for a magazine, full stop. And I just thought, oh, no, I've flagged my way into something I'm completely unqualified to do. <laughs> Total panic. Um, but it was fine. You know, I did it to word count and on time, which is uh, half the battle, really. Um, and that was all fine. And uh, so I got it in and that was that was great. And then pretty much silence. I was pitching and pitching and pitching and not very much response mm. for quite a long time. And then my first break really came with Grow Your Own magazine. Um, yes. Because I was, uh, they, I have um, a subscription to uh, writing Writers News. It's called. It comes with Writing Magazine, um, and I have been a subscriber for a long time. Very, very good magazine, and they have little kind of job leads in there. And one of the job leads was from the then editor of the Grow Your Own magazine, saying they were looking for somebody to write their plot essentials column. So I pitched for it and uh, got the job. And I've been, do you know, I've been doing it ever since. Uh, about 14 years, 15 years I've been writing that column and it's Goodness. just, I'm so grateful to him for giving me the break because it set me up basically because then I had some published articles I could show people and uh, and then, you know, just went from there really. What do you think is the secret to good writing? I think it's being yourself. I think it's not being afraid to let your personality shine through no. um, and to, to write like you talk because so many people get a bit kind of hung up on the fact that you're writing for publication and they try and use lots of long sort of flouncy words and and um, just just try and write a bit too fancy mm. or a bit too formal. They, they get worried about kind of being a bit too over the top. So they calm things down a bit too much. And it means that, you know, that you end up with something that's quite flat. You do end up with something like that from time to time. But I think, you know, if I'm it's going to sound a bit odd this, but if I read my article back, and I find it boring to read, I know it will be boring for the reader. If I'm making myself smile while I'm writing it, I'm probably on the money. Then I think, you know, that's okay. It's going to make your audience smile as well. Um, so that's what I aim for is actually, I mean, you know, I'm not the funniest of writers, but the fact is that I try and raise at least a little smile as I'm going along and I try and just write like I talk. And well, you get away with a lot, actually. I mean, I, I, I yeah. use very colloquial English sometimes and, it's fine because it comes across well. You're writing for a, you know, you're not writing for the news or anything like that. You know, obviously I try and be factually correct and everything, but mm. fact is that you can get a lot of your own personality in there as well. And I think you saying that, Sally, that's when I, when I read your articles, I can hear you, I can hear your voice. And <laughs> I think that's what draws people in. Now the introduction to how to garden a low carbon way, um, it really drew me in. If, if you'll just indulge, I'll, I'll read it out. Imagine a habitat of extraordinary diversity, capable of holding more plant varieties per square metre than a rainforest, as well as all kinds of wildlife. Sounds pretty amazing, doesn't it? And what's more, it's right outside your back door. Now, for me, that it drew me in straight away, and I could hear your voice, and as you say, it's just 
plain English. It's easy to read. It's lovely to read. Those first, that first paragraph, how important, are you aware of the importance of that first paragraph in, a, in any piece that you write? Yes, yes. Actually, to be quite honest, the first sentence is the bit that has me staring at a blank, blank screen most mm. of the time. When I'm starting an article, that's the most difficult bit. And yeah. quite often, I'll write the whole of the rest of the article, and the first sentence will occur to me just as I'm writing the last paragraph. So, yes, I fully um, understand, yeah. Yeah, I mean, sometimes, sometimes, you know, you, in the middle of the night or something, a first sentence will pop into your head and you think, oh, yeah, you know, that's, that's what I'm going to start with. Um, but more often it happens that I don't have the right first sentence or not one that makes me think, yes, that's it. You know, you know when you've, you've got the right idea in your head. And, uh, and so and sometimes it'll take two or three tries as well. Sometimes I'll write something um, that's, that I think is an OK first sentence. And as I'm going through the article, I think, nah, it doesn't work like that. You know, they have to go back and rewrite. Do you have a notebook by the side of your bed for those moments when you think, I've got it? Actually, I write them on my phone. I'm awful. I, I've got a little notes thing on my phone because I, I have my phone not far from my bed anyway. And so if I wake up and I think, yeah, I've got, got to get that down, which does occasionally happen, <laughs> um, I'll, put, I'll put it on my phone because I can't. I cannot. Well, put it this way. If I went round and tried to find a pen and a pad from the tip that is my house, <laughs> then I'd be up for the rest of the night. So just know. <laughs> <laughs> so technology leading the way though I'm very impressed really? I'm, I'm a bit of an old-fashioned guy I still write things down for, for things like that at least anyway oh, I wish I could because notepad, notepads don't run out of battery you see <laughs> this is true this is very true so is there another book inside you do you have these ideas for books like buzzing around your head and you're like right that's going to be my next one well yes and no I mean I, I have ideas that I think might make good books but they're not often saleable if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the, the trick is to convince the publisher that they're actually going to sell books that, that you know you would really like to write um but uh, you know I quite like for example to to have a how-to book as in a, a, a gardening book that was just like any other gardening book that told you what to do in each month and all this kind of stuff mm. except that was sustainable you know, yeah. so that it completely had all of the um, instructions about how to sow a seed, but the pictures and the instructions were for wooden seed trays and newspaper pots and those kinds of things. So uh, that's what I would really like to write, but, but whether or not I can persuade anybody to publish it, I'm not sure. <laughs> so <laughs> if anyone's as, out there. <laughs> well, yeah, definitely. It, and as I say, there are so many ideas. I think that's what struck me reading your new book. There is so much there. Yes, we do hear the headlining news about peat-free compost, about the use of plastics, but there are so many hints, tips and ideas to actually being, to garden in a more sustainable way in here. I was quite surprised how much there was. Well, I was a little bit worried, actually, um, because a lot of it is about not gardening so much, actually, mm. um, because the more you can leave alone, the more sustainable your garden is, because you, you encourage ecosystems that way and you encourage carbon sequestration. If you leave your soil alone as much as possible, then uh, the underground ecosystem starts to really develop and really develop in complexity because you're not disturbing it with a spade all the time those kind of little things but of course to a gardener that's really hard to hear because what you want to be doing is like sticking a spade in the ground and planting things and running around and trimming things and actually it's better if possible to leave well alone as much as you can um but having said that i also do completely recognize um you're not living in a nature reserve you know you want a mm. garden that you can use too 
um, which is why uh, one of the chapters in the book is all about um, how to design a, a wild and sustainable garden that doesn't look like a wild garden. Um, so you're letting nature in and you're uh, keeping it well maintained in a very sustainable way, but it's still looking like a um, very manicured garden. I mean, the, the, the one garden that I keep pointing to in this respect is Great Dixter in East Sussex. Mm -hmm. um, there is no more manicured garden than Great Dixter. It's an amazing garden. It's public, it's open to the public. It's very, very highly regarded, um, very intensely planted. You'd be very, very proud to have a Great Dixter outside your back door. Fergus Garrett, who runs it, uh, runs mm. it very much along sustainable and biodiverse and, and wildlife friendly lines. Um, so it's essentially it's a wild garden, even though it's so manicured. And he had an audit done on it recently, like a, a biodiversity audit. Mm -hmm. And the garden scored higher than the open countryside around it. Oh, my goodness so, me. That's incredible. Yeah. So that's what we should all be aiming at. You know, this idea of you uh, have, you know, the whole business about having um, more uh, plants per square meter than, than a rainforest. You know, gardens are like really intense, concentrated nature mm. you they are artificial environments there's no getting around that but that doesn't mean to say that they can't do what nature does but in a more intense kind of way um gardens because they are under you know if you manage them in an undisturbed way and concentrate on building up your topsoil they can have richer topsoil by far than the countryside around or certainly farmland um and and you can end up uh, with incredibly vibrant subsoil uh, ecosystems um you can end up with very intense planting in a garden which means that you've got much more biodiversity to offer to wildlife and insects i mean gardens are um one of now probably the most important resource for pollinating insects these days because it's one of the few places you find where there's an intensity of flowers in a very small area and of course that's good news for all of us gardeners to be able to go out and buy more plants to think about planting in levels so you've got your trees your shrubs your perennials your ground cover to really sort of pack in as much um plant material and pollinating plant material as we possibly can yes absolutely and also different habitats I mean, I was uh, I was in lots of, a bit of a dilemma as to which um, habitat to compare gardens to, because then they're kind of like a woodland edge, but they're not really. They're a bit like a grassland or a meadowland, but they're not really. Um, they've got some ponds and, and water features in them and that kind of thing as well. And they're like prairies. They're like all sorts of things. But you see, they've got dozens of different habitats potentially in this tiny area. And so you're offering much more diversity to a much wider range of creatures than you ever could do in the same amount of countryside. Well, I say I, I thoroughly recommend the book. It's a fantastic read. And I have started over the past two or three years, started to change the way that I garden. Um, and again, like you, I'm a professional gardener. I go out and garden for other people and you adopt different practices and people are, why aren't you clearing that away as much as you normally do? And I think you can almost strip a garden of any debris, which it, it's just yeah. so sterile that you're losing that biodiversity. And uh, yes, absolutely. I think um, with, with the professional gardening, I am uh, sadly rather less sustainable in my professional gardening than I am in my private gardening. But mm. uh, that's because clients uh, take a lot more educating. I think, you know, you have to really take people with you. Um, the gardens that I look after are becoming increasingly sustainable and increasingly sort of going in that direction. But I mean, one of the things that I really wanted to get through with the book as well was that um, you don't have to aim for perfection. You know, mm. you don't mm. have to be 100 percent perfectly sustainable. Otherwise, you're not doing it properly. 
You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. I think that it's a journey. And I think that you, once you've taken on board the idea that you need to be a bit more sustainable in the way that you do things, you make little changes here and there because you're much more aware of the impact of what you're doing. And so uh, the little changes are great. And then you start to, because you're aware of the impact of the other things that you're doing, you start to think, well, how can I change them too? And then suddenly before you're knowing it, you've got a little bit of rewilded area at the back of your garden and you've ditched the petrol mower for a battery powered mower. And you're, it's, it's a very, very sort of gradual process and it gets better and better and better each year, I think. I think one of the, talking of lawn mowing, I didn't realise that one of the facts that you mention is that using a lawn mower for an hour, a petrol lawn mower, can be the equivalent of a car driving ninety three miles. Isn't that horrific? That bit of research um, is it's it's the only bit of research that's ever been done on lawn mowers, and it was done a little while ago now. But I d- there's no particular reason to think that it would have changed all that much. And more recent research last year didn't check lawn mowers. But they did test other petrol powered uh, machinery. So hedge trimmers, uh, they did a leaf blower and a strimmer. And uh, they, they tested them in a vehicle um, emissions testing uh, facility. And they ran the emissions tests on them and they went off the chart. And the right. uh, leaf blower was the worst one. And they reckoned that that was three times the maximum allowed emissions by the DVLA, uh, the testing people. So in other words, it's three times what you're allowed to have in a car Mm -hmm. is what you're emitting when you're using a petrol um, uh, piece of garden equipment. I I just think, you know, particularly these days when we've got very, very good, high quality, very powerful battery powered equipment, and there's really no reason not to use it. And I think it's reading things like that. For me, again, as a professional gardener, having used a petrol lawnmower for uh, almost 20 years, just the mind-blowing figure of a car driving that distance is the equivalent of um, mowing for an hour. It just... and, I mean, the thing is, you know, would you walk behind that car while it drove its 93 miles? No, no you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. You don't want to be breathing it in, would you? And I, I have a, a, a hate for law, for leaf blowers as much as they are a, a part, of, an important part of a job when you're gardening professionally. I have always hated them. And mm. when I come home, I won't pick one up. My garden, I, I can't use a petrol leaf mower. But of course, yeah. now I have this big dilemma about the lawnmower. Um, but as you say, if we can take some bits and pieces from this and start to implement some small changes, and that's the one thing that I've picked up from the book, there's still more that I can do, which is surprising because you think you're doing as much as you possibly can. But there's still little things there that you can actually make a difference with. So it's a a really it blew my mind reading some of the things in the book there well I'm really really glad you've got a lot from it actually that's fantastic and that's exactly what I was aiming to do it's wonderful what's next for you this coming up this year obviously hopefully with the news of the vaccine we'll hopefully start to come out of lockdown any initiatives or projects on the horizon for you won't that be wonderful I can't wait actually I really can't wait I'm hoping that um, I've got a couple of holidays to lead uh, one in Wales and one in uh, North well it's kind of uh, Devon and Cornwall really so I'm hoping to go to some wonderful gardens this year can't wait to do that that's going to be just fantastic Um, and uh, then otherwise it's mostly just um, continuing to write a bit more about what I'm what I'm writing about really and uh, you know I'm I've carry on writing for the people I'm writing for I hope that's all just keep on keeping on and I'm hoping very much that my garden is going to be the best it's ever been this year because (laughs) I've had a pretty good start so far so fingers crossed 
I have to say that ring, that resonates with me because I, I think we probably all as gardeners say my garden is going to be the best this year. But I think after having had more time in the garden last year because of lockdown, I made such great inroads. So like you, exactly. uh, raise a toast to better gardens. Let's hope so. Eh? <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today, Sally. I really appreciate it. It's, it's been really interesting talking to you. I wish you very best of luck with the new book. Oh, it's really sweet of you. Thank you. Well, that was a fascinating chat with Sally. Thank you so much. And Sally's new book, Gardening the Low Carbon Way, is available through your preferred online and high street retailers. And now, let's head over to Otis's new garden. Right, I'm sat in Otis's back garden. What was the garden like when you first came here three, four weeks ago? Yeah, no, it was about three, four weeks ago. Um, We opened the back door to a, say, six-foot deep patio, and then it went on to just grass well if you could call it grass which was about just under your knee in height and then there was um, a row of old fence posts that would try to make some sort of edge down one side which he seemed to have placed all his pots behind and yeah it was just a right mess and overgrown fruit trees and and brambles out on the other side there was not a lot else here it was blank canvas really so do you know how long the garden hadn't been looked at for how long it had been left well, neighbours have said he was a like keen gardener. Like he bought a lot of things and grew in pots, kind of. And there was about a hundred pots here shoved around the edge of the garden. Um, but he deceased about eight months ago, and obviously he was ill, so it could be a good year and a half he hasn't been touched. So, what are you going to do? Well, you've already made a start in the garden. It's already already looking really good. So, what have you done? Tell everybody what your design is. Well, it's been a bit fast tracked. Um, because we have to um, self-isolate, even though, thank God, we're all healthy and everything, so that's absolutely fine. Um, <laughs> so it got fast-tracked because we couldn't do stuff inside because of contractors and that couldn't finish what they were doing. So I thought, right, got this enforced time, do some in my own garden. So start by just dotting the big plants. I got like Acer, my ginkgo tree, and the bananas, the biggest stuff, dotted it around, which then came to a circle kind of lawn shape, and it kind of worked. And because it's a north-facing garden, this, the bottom's a nice shady garden, but that's where the patio is, and obviously you want to sit in the sun. So at the top of the garden, we've done some sleepers going across and um, filled it with gravel. So we've got a nice seating area up here with a few pots as well, and we're planning on having a little greenhouse up here as well. So already, looking around the garden, we're, we're sat in the sunny area in the gravel, looking down at the garden. It's not very sunny though, is it? <laughs> it's not very sunny, in fact, it's quite cold in the garden at the moment, but it's still looking very nice, so there's a lot of colour, so we've got colour from, well, tell us where we're getting colour from at the moment. I got, um, cause I quite like my old rustics, rustic bits and bobs, so we've got some old um, bathtubs um, full of tatar tate here, we've got some euphorbia, which is looking lovely down the bottom. Got a Prunus Kojo, Edwervia coming out. And it's just, oh, the hellebores, sorry, how did I forget them? Yeah, the hellebores look absolutely stunning. Oh, and the primroses. So, yeah, a lot of colour coming out, and it's quite nice seeing the aces coming out into leaf now as well. Yeah, the aces look really nice. And the one thing that I really do like is you have got, and I'm really jealous, an old metal dustbin. So, what are you going to do with that old metal dustbin? Well, that was actually left here by himself it was full of loads of roof metal roof joists and i thought ah okay there was a hole in the bottom so i filled up with some soil because i wanted to get these bags of soil out of the way and it is going to become a dahlia 
um, container and as Michael knows I'm a bit of a foliage guy so I'm getting a bit flowery in my older age now <laughs> yeah I'm getting a little bit worried about you because it's me that does the flowers and you do the foliage and there are flowers everywhere and as you say there's tete-a-tetes there's hellebores there's primroses and there's going to be more dahlias than Arthur Parkinson could shake a stick at so you are going to have one hell of a floriferous garden here I think it's definitely going to be different but also um so the back garden and there's be some pictures of my instagram to follow soon but also i've started working the front it's got to be a bit more bit um, work in progress out there because we're trying to make a bit of a drive as well but that's going to be quite like a full sun garden all day so yeah we're thinking of planting out there quite a bit of blousy stuff as well blousy stuff so what are you going to put in your front garden and i'm getting really worried now i think i have to wait you have to wait and see well maybe we'll talk about that next time so Good progress. Four weeks, a garden, and as Otis has just said, if you want to actually see pictures of how this is coming along, if you go to his Instagram account, which is Otis the Gardener, we're looking at each other. Is it what it was? (laughs) We think it's Otis the Gardener, uh, but I will put a link on my um, page for this. I'm pretty sure it's Otis the Gardener and if you go there you'll be able to check out progress on his garden. Well thank you Otis and I look forward to coming back in a few weeks time to seeing what other flowers you've bought for your garden. Oh uh, there's a few on order already. (laughs) (laughs) Deary me. See you next time. Well sadly folks that's it we're out of time. I really hope you've enjoyed it. I know I have and as always thank you for your invaluable support. If you've listened through Apple Podcasts, please do subscribe and leave a review and do pass on the word, won't you? And if you want to see more of my garden, you can find me on Instagram where I'm Mike underscore the gardener. And if you want to have a quick nosy at Otis's new garden, he's also on Instagram as Otis the gardener. So we'll see you next time, folks. Bye bye for now. Bye bye. (laughs)